This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Elena Astari Tafti, who is a PhD candidate in economics at University College London and a graduate scholar at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. She is an applied microeconomist focusing on health and public policy. Today, we are going to talk about her job market paper, Technology, Skills and Performance, the case of robots in surgery. Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jordi. I'm delighted to be here. Elena, in this paper, you study the effect of using robots in surgical procedures. Before we go into what you do in the paper, your empirical strategy and so on, can you tell us what a robot is? So a robot in surgery especially is formed by three components. It's a surgical console that is used by the surgeon to manipulate what is the second component, which are three to five robotic arms that operate on the patient. And then the last component of the robot in this setting is going to be a screen where uh, all the kind of uh, technical parts of the process are recorded and shown to the nurses in the operating room. So if I was to be operated and I was given the choice of being operated by a person or by a robot, I might be tempted to go for a person because I don't know exactly how this robot thing works. What would be the advantage or the main advantage of using robots? in uh, surgical procedures? So first of all, let me just say that in surgery, the robot is operated directly by a person. So there is not this dichotomy between a robot and human. The main advantage uh, of using the robot would be that the robot can use the tools that are much smaller than what a human hand can hold. And so they can fit into way smaller incisions, thereby kind of reducing uh, the invasiveness of the procedure. Also, of course, you can think of the robot as having, uh, for example, no hand tremors, right? So it would be much more precise and with the increased dexterity relatively to a, a surgeon. From what you're saying, obviously, the, these type of benefits are going to be different for different type of procedures. Mm -hmm. What is the procedure that you focus on in this paper, uh, the surgical procedure? So I focus on the removal of the prostate for prostate cancer patients. And I focus on this procedure because this has been the procedure that has seen the largest growth in uh, uh, robotic surgery in the past 15 years. And of course, the robot is not suitable for all procedures. And this has been deemed one of the procedures in which the robot should actually have some measurable benefit because the prostate is really hard to access. Um, and so the robot in this case could really give an advantage to the surgeon. What does uh, a surgeon who reads about the existence of robots need to do in order to start operating with a robot in her local hospital? So of course, this is, comes only from anecdotal evidence that I have, but the first thing uh, they have to do is to start to lobby their hospital managers to buy a robot. The robot is extremely expensive, um, is around uh, 1.5 million pounds with an operating cost of around 500,000 per year. So the first thing the surgeon has to do is to get the funds uh, to purchase the robot. I presume that in addition to being expensive, it also requires like additional training uh, to the surgeon. Um, <laughs> does it require other type of like a adaptation on the hospital side? Oh, yes. I mean, usually the robot uh, stays in a special operating room that is uh, oftentimes built ex novo to host the robot. There are substantial costs, both in terms of like monetary costs, but also just to adapt to use this technology. So what is the setting in which you do your study? It's the introduction of robots uh, where? So I studied the introduction of robots in the National Health Service of England. So I only focus on England and I only focus on public NHS hospitals, which are, however, the majority of hospitals in England. And this is for prostate cancer, as, as you said earlier. What is the timeline through which these robots were introduced uh, in the NHS? <clears throat> so I see the first notable uptake of robots for prostate cancer surgery around 2007. And uh, by 2017, which is the end of the panel I used in this study, 80% of patients undergoing prostate cancer surgery got uh, a robotic uh, surgeon, if you want to call it. Um, obviously, this must mean that the surgeons at the hospitals managed to overcome the obstacles that you were mentioning just now. Uh, also, it must mean that, <clears throat> at least from their perspective, you are going to tell us about whether this is true or not. 
but at least from their perspective, there were substantial benefits to using robots for prostate cancer. In what type of like variables would one expect to see these benefits and what type of variables do you use in your study? as dependent variables to, to measure performance? Yeah, so I focus, uh, let me just be clear that I focus on two margins of performance that are very specific to patients. So I focus on benefits on patients rather than benefits on surgeons. Consider that from the surgeon perspective, for example, a significant benefit of using the robot could be that he can operate sitting down instead of standing up. And since these operations are often quite long, this could be a measurable benefit from the perspective of the surgeon. I completely abstract from this type of benefits, and I only focus on the benefits that the robot has on patient outcomes. And I consider two patient outcomes. Patients' length of stay in hospital after the operation, so the number of days the patient spends in hospital after being operated, and the insurgence of adverse events, for example, complications from surgery that I measure within two years from the operation. So one variable that is uh, sometimes used in uh, the type of like a health studies similar to the one that you're carrying here is mortality, because obviously patients most directly care about not dying themselves, right? So that will be like the ultimate measure of performance. In many health studies, mortality is difficult to put on the left-hand side just because it doesn't occur often enough, I guess, fortunately, that we can detect an effect there. Is that the same type of logic, like not enough people die of prostate cancer for you to be able to, you know, like meaningfully detect uh, effects on mortality? Correct. Prostate cancer surgery is not a, a type of surgery where death is a very common event. Of course, I also include the deaths in a hospital deaths. But these are super rare in my context. And let me just say that in general, in-hospital deaths are very, very rare, even if you look at the, the old span of procedures. So what are the questions that you answer uh, in this paper? The first one, obviously, we have touched upon it, whether robots on average increase performance. But what are the other important questions that you tackle here? So I asked two questions in this paper. The first is whether benefits from using the robot significantly depends on the existing skills of the surgeon. And the second question is whether the robot has an equalizing effect on patient outcomes which uh, for that I mean whether the robot can uh, has the potential to bring uh, the performance of lower-skilled surgeons to the same level as high-skilled surgeons. So let me say at this point that I think that this, this question is incredibly important. The heterogeneity of the, of the, of the effects, I think, is, is something that we don't study enough because somehow when we run regressions, we have like a some notion at the back of our heads that, of course, that is going to be a different number for different people. But, you know, we, we don't tackle, you know, that, that issue head on. You have, however, like another question that is important as well, which is in terms of the livelihood of adoption. What is going on there? So by, by trying to answer whether the robot has any effect on patient outcomes and whether these effects are heterogeneous, I need to address head on the fact that surgeons will select into robotic surgery. The choice of adopting a robot is not random, of course. And so by answering my, the questions I just said, I need to study the process of selection into robotic surgery. And by doing that, I, I basically have to address the question of whether high-skilled surgeons are more likely to adopt the robot relative to low-skilled surgeons. This is high-skilled surgeons prior to the arrival of the robot or surgeons who are going to receive the highest benefit, like whose skills in terms of operating patients are going to be affected the most by the introduction of the of the robot because with respect to the, the second question you will say well if there is like a heterogeneity of treatment effects clearly the first adopter is going to be the surgeon with the highest treatment effect and then the second adopter will the one with the second that will be the kind of question i mean whether you find this or not is a different issue but that will be the kind of question that you try to answer here what I do actually is that uh, I fix uh, the time at which I measure skills uh, to the period prior to the adoption of robots. Uh, the panel dimension of my data allows me to observe surgeons uh, four years before robots are actually introduced nationally in the NHS. 
So I take those years and I measure their performance when all surgeries were carried out in the traditional method of operating. I measure surgical skills of surgeons in the period prior to the adoption and I ask whether among uh, what are the effects along the lines of this skill distribution prior to the adoption when uh, there was no technological aid involved. Okay, so three questions. Broadly speaking, what, what is the average effect? However, we want to average that out. Secondly, is that effect bigger or smaller depending on the previous underlying skill of the surgeon? Third question, something about who is more likely to adopt uh, the robot first, depending on the pre-existing skills of the surgeon. I mean, you mentioned, I, I go back in time prior to the adoption uh, of the robots, prior to the robots being available at all in the NHS, and I measure their skills, let's say, with their hand. Mm-hmm. How exactly do you do that? What is the measure of skills that you use? I measure surgeon skills using the same outcomes I actually evaluate the performance of the robots on. I cannot just compare raw outcomes of surgeons to create a ranking of surgeons because surgeons operate on very different level of patients. So what I do is that I risk adjust the outcomes to take into account for patient severity And then I create a ratio between predicted and expected adverse events that occur for each surgeon. And this is going to be my measure of skills. So my measure of skills is going to tell us whether the surgeon is under or overperforming given his pool of patients relatively to the national average. Let me repeat that that measure emphasizing one aspect that that I, I want to make clear. This ratio of predicted to expected And both of them are predictions. Like you essentially run a model and the model has the uh, doctor effect. You, you call it a random effect. I don't really understand the difference, but you can think of it also like a, as a fixed effect of, of the doctor. No? Then you take the fitted values of the characteristics of the patient. I mean, taking into account the characteristics of the patient as well as potentially taking into account the fixed effect of the doctor. And on the numerator, you put the prediction of how many patients will have adverse effects once we account for the criteria of the patient that we have estimated and the criteria of the doctor. And in the denominator, the same without the fixed effect of the doctor. And that is your ratio. Correct. So if I had not read your paper and I was to do that, what I would have done, maybe this is like a really coarse way of approaching the problem, would be to run this regression that is half a adverse effects on the left-hand side, criteria of the patient on the right-hand side, fixed effects of the doctor on the right-hand side also, and then use just like the estimated fixed effect of the doctor as the measure of skills. I am wondering whether you could tell me why what you did is better or different from this like very basic approach that I will be suggesting. Yes. I also try to, to do what you suggest, and I test the robustness of my results to your approach, for example, and the, the results are unchanged from it. Why I chose this way of uh, uh, measuring skills is because the outcome of this measure will be less noisy than what you suggest, and the estimates will be more easily interpretable. Now, as you know, of course, when you estimate fixed effects, you're going to get something related to your excluded uh, hospital or surgeon. And it will be way more difficult uh, for me, at least, to interpret these results uh, um, in a meaningful way. Also, of course, the, the methodolo- I don't come up with this methodology myself. This is a methodology that has, is used by, the, for example, the Center of Medicaid and Medicare Services to rank hospitals. So I kind of borrow from them to, to develop this measure of surgical skills. But there could be many different ways to measure skills. And that's kind of one of the greatest challenge in my paper is to convince people that the measure of skills actually captures what I would like to capture. So, so let me help you in the process of convincing me that uh, mm-hmm. this is like a measure of skills. So you uh, risk adjust for the criteria of the patient. Very important here is how good these controls are or how fine these characteristics are, right? So you have characteristics such as uh, whether the patient has diabetes, whether the patient has had a heart attack, okay? Apparently the technical term for that is myocardial infarction. But one thing, one thing that came to my mind, okay, without being a doctor is that you don't have as part of your controls, for instance, 
how obese the patient is. Now, I would expect that if if you said that the prostate is difficult to access and I was to take a knife and, you know, cut a man open in order to access the prostate, it's going to be harder to do that if there is a lot of fat in between. Now, different areas uh, of the country have different average levels of BMI because of many reasons, nutrition or levels of poverty, whatever. So that will be the type of, if you want like a, an observed variable that might be capturing something that is additional to the skills, you know, like a, some unobserved category of the local patient in that place. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And that's why kind of in the process of testing the robustness of this measure, I also estimate the model with the postal area fixed effects for the patient. However, it doesn't make a notable difference. And my reason is uh, that the medical characteristics I include actually capture what you're suggesting in many, in many ways. For example, in the case of uh, obesity, obese people are very likely to have uh, uh, heart attacks. So because I measure the variable you mentioned, so all these, these are called comorbidities. So these are factors that make you a riskier patient. I take uh, two years uh, of data prior to the admission of the patient to measure these, uh, these comorbidities, uh, then I'm pretty confident that uh, my model captures enough of the characteristics of the patient. Now, of course, I would love to have the weight. However, this is not observable from uh, the, the data I use. So I kind of try to make the best out of what I, I got. The other thing that I noticed is that this measure is calculated at the hospital level uh, rather than at the individual uh, surgeon level. Why do you do that? I do that because in my case, uh, the majority of hospitals uh, have only one surgeon uh, that is observed performing this operation. And so it doesn't really make much of a difference. Uh, to begin with. And uh, in general, even the largest hospitals have at most uh, two, three surgeons. And unfortunately, when you go to the level of the surgeon for these hospitals, the number become too small. And so I just do this kind of simplification and just do everything at the hospital level. Of course, this is, uh, you know, it would be nicer to do it at the surgeon level, but it would create an unnecessary level of complication in the data, which doesn't seem to buy a lot in my case. So if I was to uh, take the setting that you are describing and have like a very uh, basic course approach to to it with a view of answering the questions that we were posing at the beginning. I will run to regressions. Adoption of robots as a function of the skills of the surgeon or hospital, as we have just mentioned that you calculated, and then performance in an operation afterwards in the like post-2005, I think, uh, period, as a function of the robots interacted with that measure of skills. Mm? Uh, obviously, I will need like an instrument or a couple of instruments. You, you are going to use those as well. That can allow me to convincingly deal with the fact that there are selection issues in this, in this second regression. That is what I will do, broadly speaking, is a standard two-stage least square strategy. And I will end up estimating, as a, is well known, the local average treatment effect. Now, in this paper, you do something else. You estimate marginal treatment effects could you describe what this methodology is and what it does that two-stage least squares doesn't do? Yes, I hope I, I can uh, make justice to the scholars that have introduced this method. The marginal treatment effect is not much different than any other two-stage uh, procedure, uh, like the one you described before. What it does uh, that is different uh, is that it focuses uh, on a primitive uh, of the treatment effects. So you mentioned the, the local average treatment effect. Now, the marginal treatment effect is a component of the local average effect. By integrating the marginal average treatment effect, you can get the local average treatment effect. The strength of this approach is that it allows us to directly account for heterogeneity in treatment effects and for the fact that people are going to select into treatment based on their expected gains from treatment. So it's more explicit about selection, this method, but is uh, in terms of estimation, it uses what is called the, the, the local linear instrumental variable regression. 
So it's just running basically a local IV, an IV on very small parts of the distribution uh, of effects. I think I was calling it earlier the marginal treatment effect, and, and you also repeated it in the singular. But I think it's important to emphasize that it's a plural, right? Like it's a marginal treatment effects. So there is only one latte, but there are a lot of NTEs, right? And then you, you integrate, Absolutely. which means adding them up in one way or another. Yes. So obviously, you know, if I am going to get something that is more precise or richer, I would prefer that to something that is more average or coarser. Why doesn't everybody then do marginal treatment effects? Is it because it requires stronger assumptions or data that is of a specific way or is it because they haven't read your paper and or the papers of those scholars that you mentioned earlier what are the drawbacks here well there are very few drawbacks to be honest anyone who's uh, trying to get some IV estimates should consider also attempting to get the marginal treatment effects estimates what the MTE does, first of all, the, the type of assumptions required for identification are equivalent to the assumptions required for the identification of the late. What it requires, however, is that you have a continuous instrument, which may not be available in many cases, that creates enough variation in the sample for people to be indeed identified in their margin of indifference. So it's more burdensome on the instrument, but it doesn't require any stronger assumption. So you have in the LATTE methodology, you have the compliers. Correct. You have three other groups. So the fires are obviously, we don't want those ones. Yeah. But typically these ones are, you know, assumed away. Yeah. Uh, always takers and never takers. Yes. So is it the fact that you cannot have always takers and never takers in your methodology because everybody must have some likelihood of uh, uh, being treated that is strictly bigger than zero and strictly smaller than one? No, actually, I want these people because I want to be able to identify the marginal treatment effect for all people that have a probability of receiving treatment between zero and one included. Actually, by having people that have zero likelihood of treatment and uh, probability one of treatment, I will be able actually to identify the average uh, treatment effect. What I need, however, is that uh, not all the people that uh, my instrument predicts uh, as having probability one of getting treatment are actually taking the treatment. So I want basically all these, these uh, categories of uh, individuals you have mentioned, and I want them in uh, large numbers so I can uh, identify the full distribution of effects for all of them. Okay, so as we have established, you still need an instrument you actually use uh, two instruments uh, in this paper, um, two instruments for the adoption of the robots. What are those? I use uh, first the relative distance between uh, an individual's closest hospital and the closest hospital offering a robotic surgery. So this would be the kilometers that you have to travel to get to robotics to a robotic hospital after you have reached your closest hospital. Kind of the additional distance you would have to travel to get to a robotic hospital. And then the second instrument I use is the number of days between the individual diagnosis and his closest hospital adopting the robot. Now, both of these instruments work on the fact that people tend to go to their closest hospital. So anything that uh, have them kind of divert from their usual choice will be perceived as a cost for them. So let me repeat the instruments here and then ask you a couple of questions about them. So number one, um, the um, relative distance uh, between the patient location or where they live, more or less, proxy or whatever, uh, to the closest hospital that has a robot and the closest hospital that may or may not have a robot. Obviously, if the closest hospital has a robot, that, that ratio is going to be one, um, you know, but... Well, it's not going to be a ratio, it's going to be a difference. So it, it will be positive or negative. Okay. Now, one important thing here, so if, if, if it is a, a difference, it may be positive or negative, 
But if you live in a rural area, the variance of that number is going to be much bigger than if you live in the middle of London, right? Because if you live in a rural area, hospitals are going to be really far, right? So the distance between the closest hospital and the second closest hospital is going to be enormous, no? So therefore, depending on whether one has a robot or not, the number is going to be positive or negative, but the absolute value of this, this measure is going to be very big if you put it as a difference rather than as a ratio. I think the key part here is that uh, we need to think of uh, anything uh, on top of what the patient would uh, usually have to do to get to a robotic hospital. So someone that lives in a in a rural area would still have to travel, I don't know, 15 kilometers before they reach their closest hospital. Now, I'm not taking that distance. I'm taking the additional kilometers he would have to travel once he has reached the closest hospital to get to a robotic hospital. So, for example, if you live in a rural area and you need to get to London, then uh, this distance may be two kilometers because the closest hospital to the border, to the robotic uh, hospital, would be maybe very small. So it's this kind of additional traveling that I'm going to look at. Uh, my my second uh, question or the second thing that I wanted to emphasize is that this uh, distance measure, the critical thing here about it is that it is time varying. Yes. Why? Because it's time varying, it allows me to directly uh, control for uh, area characteristics. So having like area fixed effects in my specification. Um, which means that uh, I can control for any time invariant and observe characteristics of the patient in my specification. Why is it time varying? It's time varying because as time passes, more hospital will adopt in my sample. So for an individual living uh, in the same area, so let's say you live in Islington, in uh, 2007, you had to travel three kilometers to reach, uh, you had uh, this relative distance measure that was three kilometers. In 2017, this may be 500 meters because your closest hospital or the second closest hospital has adopted the robot. So this uh, distance will vary for individuals living in the same area, which allows for a tighter handling of uh, endogenic basically. So then the fact that this is time varying and then after you, in a specification control for local area fixed effects, yeah. the idea is that prostate cancer patients are not migrating over time in ways that are correlated with this measure of local hospitals adoption of robots. Correct. That would be the broad idea. Correct. And uh, I mean, this would be an important concern for other um, medical issues. So for example, if you have to do chemotherapy, right, you may want to move closer to a hospital that offer a good chemotherapy service. However, in my case, you can only remove your prostate once. So it's unlikely you would kind of strategically position yourself to get to the best uh, hospital at doing that. The um, second instrument uh, is the um, number of days that have passed since the closest hospital to where the patient lives adopted the robot. Now, you mentioned earlier that it is important for the marginal treatment effects uh, strategy that the instruments are continuous. Uh, but to me, it is not immediately obvious that this instrument is most naturally written as a continuous uh, measure. And this is because if I think, now imagine that uh, I'm a patient living in an area and 500 days have passed uh, since my closest hospital adopted a robot. So that number is 500. Mm -hmm. And now my neighbor, 100 days later, also has a diagnosis of prostate cancer. In his case now, like 600 days have passed, 100 more. I don't know why my neighbor should be more likely to be operated with a robot than I am. Because for both of us, the local hospital is already using the robot, right? So I don't see why there should be like a linearity or even like a continuity. Uh, to this instrument as opposed to like a one-off you know the moment that they buy the machine the moment that the surgeons learn how, and the nurses learn how to use it then that propensity should be broadly identical for everybody you're absolutely right just let me be clear that the mte framework only requires uh, at least one continuous instrument then you can add on top of that as many as you want so we, we're going to have, for sure, my continuous instrument that is going to be the kilometers, the distance in kilometers, and then I add this instrument to it. And you're absolutely right that you may not expect uh, maybe this uh, effect to be linear. You may expect the, that the probability at a certain point reaches you know, one. 
So I also test a specification in which I use this instrument only as a dummy variable. So where I just have that, you know, it takes value one if your closest hospital has already adopted the, the robot. Also an important thing in the marginal treatment effect framework is that whatever we're going to estimate is, uh, so unlike the late, that really depends on the instruments um, you use, right? The definition of the late will, de- will depend uh, uh, on the instruments. This is not the case for the marginal treatment effect. So whether I have both or either, I mean, I always need a continuous instrument. So I can either have only the relative distance or the relative distance and the number of days. So continuing uh, with the instruments, at some point uh, you write that to satisfy the exclusion restriction, I require the timing of adoption to be random relative to the individual health status. Uh, This refers uh, to the issue that we were describing earlier about the like a, a migration of patients in a way that is correlated with the adoption of the robots by the local hospital. And I, I mean, you were dismissing this as, as a probably not like a very valid concern or very uh, plausible concern after you control for local area fixed effects. And I am with respect to this really inclined to agree with you that, you know, that will seem like a very unlikely pattern of migration. But I was wondering whether this is the only thing uh, that you need uh, for the exclusion restriction. This is because, as we mentioned earlier, adopting the robot actually takes a lot of institutional effort on the part of a hospital. And I'm wondering why will, you know, a hospital at some point decide or have the energy or have the management, you know, to do the overhaul to the surgical uh, system that we were describing with spending half a million pounds and then a dedicated room and training and so on. So I'm thinking of the following. Imagine that there is like a new surgeon that arrives or a new uh, leader of the prostate urology, I guess that will be unit. And then there is like some type of overhaul of the practices. And then this new leader of the local unit says, from now on, all of us surgeons are going to wash our hands more often. And we are also going to put the robot in there, right? That is a shock that is to the hospital, um, but is correlated, obviously, with the arrival of the robot. And even controlling for local area fixed effects, controlling for the patients, which I think is very plausible that you're perfectly controlling for, that will be like a potential issue with this instrument still. So let me just let me just expand a bit on that. For the instruments to be valid, the only really important thing I require is that they quasi-randomize patients into robotic surgery. So what I want from the instruments is that they affect the patient outcomes only through robotic uh, the assignment to robotic surgery. Now, what you're referring to in your in your uh, very plausible scenario is that uh, what I'm capturing is not only the effect of the robot, but also the effect, for example, of having a new and uh, more, uh, you know, uh, prepared head surgeon. Okay, yes. So this is a possibility, of course. However, having a new and uh, more, uh, you know, well-trained head surgeon that makes everyone washing their hands more often will affect in the same way the patient of robotic surgery and the patients of traditional surgery. And consider that in my case, most hospitals keep doing uh, both of them at the same time. So any type of uh, effect that I capture will only be the result of uh, within area, within month, within year variation, right? And so I'm going to be able to just compare, like this type of general effects should be kind of net out. But it's true that, you know, if you don't believe that, then you could just say, oh, maybe robots are, you know, associated with better practices. And then I would also be capturing that with my estimates. To some extent, the robot is capturing better practices in that, uh, that are part of the family of effects that the robot generates. Because obviously, the additional, I mean, you say that the robot is not just the robot, but the additional training, the dedicated room or, you know, et cetera. Et cetera. So, you know... Uh, that is fine, okay? Those, those practices that are, that are required by the existence of the robots, that is okay, we are measuring them as part of the robot. I'm, I gave the example of washing your hands as something that is, you know, an orthogonal type of practice, you know, that is not required necessarily more by having robots than not having, maybe perhaps even less, but by having robots and not having them. 
you actually in the paper try to uh, look at this issue by running a type of placebo exercise. How does that exercise work? So I run two types of uh, kind of placebo test uh, for each of my instruments, one for each of my instruments. My main concern here, which is maybe a bit different from what you have, is that uh, the instruments, so the, for example, how close you live to a robotic hospital, may be correlated with your health status. So let's say that only London hospitals have the robot, then, uh, you know, the majority of people living in London may be younger and fitter and go to the gym. So I'm concerned that uh, the instrument may pick up some unobserved health characteristic of the patient, which may be correlated with the, the patient health outcomes. So to check whether this is actually the case, or more likely whether I can exclude that this is an important concern, what I do is, for example, in the case of relative distance, I test whether the outcomes of heart attack patients are correlated with, this relative, with my relative distance instrument. Now, consider that the robots are not used for heart attacks. So basically, the, the outcomes of heart attack patients should not be related at all to the relative distance to a robotic hospital. If I believe that uh, relative distance, uh, the only effect that, has, uh, that is related to outcomes is to get you into a robotic uh, operating room. So I show in the paper that uh, people that live closer to a robotic hospitals are not more or less likely to die from an heart attack. So let me, uh, at, at this point, go back to what I mentioned earlier and interpret the placebo that uh, you have just uh, discussed on the basis of that. I, I anticipated this placebo, and therefore I told you that my concern was that there is a new uh, head surgeon of the urology unit, mm -hmm. right? Now, I didn't say a new CEO of the hospital. And I didn't say that because, because the placebo that you are just mentioning will be a good placebo for a hospital level organizational change, right? Because a hospital level organizational change should also be picked up uh, in the instrument being correlated with mortality of, on, on heart attack uh, patients. For sure. Right? So the type of issue that I have in mind is like narrower, right? Narrower. I don't know whether there is such a thing as the head of a urology unit, but it will have to be something that is unit specific as opposed to, because at the, at, at the overall level of the hospital, you have this placebo that is uh, already already there. Okay, good. So what are the main results? What do you find using this methodology? Well, I find that the robot has a positive impact on patient outcomes. It reduces patient's length of stay and the probability of having an adverse event from uh, surgery. However, I also find that the results are significantly heterogeneous and strongly depends on the skills of the surgeon. What I find is really uh, maybe surprising for some people, but I find that... Uh, the higher the skills of the surgeons, the lower the effects from using the robot. So actually, my results suggest that the high-skilled surgeons gain very little in terms of performance by using the robot, while lower-skilled surgeons gain the most from it. They see the largest increase in performance from using the robot. Should you say the, the effects are positive? But of course, given that you have a giving us this speech about not there being an effect, but like a family of effects, what you meant is the average effect is positive, right? However, we aggregate or something. And then there's a heterogeneity, and then this effect uh, is higher the worse the uh, surgeon was prior to the introduction of the robots. Now my question, I guess, is why? Um, like one technology that will come to mind related to what you said earlier that will explain this finding is what you said about the tremor hand, right? Like if, if I have like a surgeon who is uh, 85 years old, right? I wouldn't really trust that surgeon so much uh, with their hand, okay? Because maybe old age and potential Parkinson is making them, you know, play around with my prostate. I wouldn't want that. But maybe I will trust them to use a robot, right? Because is that the type of thing that you have in mind? Like some type of like uh, pre-existing level of skill that is, uh, let's say, uh, orthogonal to cognitive ability, but strongly correlated with uh, hand-to-eye coordination or the type of things that a robot solves? Yes, yes, for sure. So the way I'm thinking about this is, uh, as you suggested, uh, that uh, surgeons that were not really good before may be the surgeons that had uh, hand tremors. 
And by replacing uh, human hands with uh, robotic arms, the robot may improve uh, the performance of these surgeons. I'm also thinking about uh, the fact that very high-skilled surgeons already had kind of plateaued on their level of performance. I mean, there is so many, I mean, there is not much you can do to shorten length of stay of a patient in hospital if your patient already stays only two days in hospital after surgery. While if you are a less skilled surgeon and your patients stay three to five days, then, you know, the robot has some room to bring these improvements. So what I find in the paper is that indeed what happens is that the lower, the, sorry, the high-skilled surgeons are still really good. It's just that they were very good to begin with. So the effect of the robot is to just bring the people that were kind of below the average up uh, rather than bringing everyone up, which I think makes complete sense, by the way. A way that I find easier to understand what you said uh, is when the dependent variable is discrete. Correct. Uh, so for the other dependent variable, which is the existence of adverse effects, I cannot bring it down below zero. Um, I, I presume that the likelihood of adverse effects is, is, is already relatively small. It's not that 95% of patients have, have adverse effects and then, you know, it goes down to 90. Instead, it's something like 5% or something that it goes down to 1%, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. I, I mean, let me give you just a few numbers. I mean, what I find, for example, for the adverse events is that... Uh, the difference between high and low skilled surgeons with traditional surgery was around three percentage points. And by using the robot, this difference shrinks to one percentage point. So this to give you kind of like some measurable effects. But it's true that, I mean, you can only reduce it to zero, right? So, so at this point, you said that you were surprised. I was not particularly surprised because I had no particularly strong prior as to who would. You know, in fact, I would say, Along the lines that you are des describing, well, if I am further away from the frontier, then any technology might help me the most. What I think is a little bit more surprising, or, or a lot more surprising, is uh, the relation between the livelihood of adoption and the um, benefits from treatment. What do you find there? And uh, what describe again the methodology that, that you use to, to find that relation? Sure. I mean, by estimating the marginal treatment effects, which is basically an effect for each likelihood of using the robot, I, I can observe whether people that are less likely to get the robot have higher treatment effects or people that are more likely to get the robot have higher treatment effects. So what I show in the paper is that I find a significant form of negative selection, both on observable and unobservable characteristics. So for example, in terms of skills, I find that although the lower skilled surgeons have the highest attainable gains from using the robot, they use the robot the least. Actually, if you, if you use a binary measure of skills, you see that going from low to high skills increases the uh, probability of using the robot by 26 percentage points. So actually, high-skilled surgeons use the robot much more intensively than low-skilled surgeons, although they have less benefits uh, from it. I also find that the marginal treatment effect curve is, uh, uh, shows that uh, in terms of unobservable characteristics, um, the probability of using uh, the robot is associated with uh, reduced uh, improvements in performance. So a couple of questions about uh, what you just said. The first one is that you have a figure in the graph in which you plot uh, on the x-axis the unobserved resistant to treatment. Okay? So on the right side, you have people who are very unlikely to adopt the treatment. On the left side, people that are very likely. Uh, on the y-axis, you have the treatment effects. Okay? The um, curve that you plot has a downward slope. Okay. This is all coming from the estimation uh, where you find that those who are more unlikely to adopt the treatment are the ones that benefit the most because for them the treatment effect is the most negative, which means that the length of stay decreases the most, the likelihood of adverse effect decreases the most. Yeah. Okay? This, is, this is really, I mean, I'm just uh, describing the figure that you have in the paper, um, you know, related to what you mentioned earlier. My question here is why does this line or this curve go above zero for a non-insignificant uh, proportion of the, of the patients uh, in one of the figures, right? Because 
you have been telling me throughout that the effects are the treatment effects are good, negative for everybody, you know. But there is a figure in which they are positive for 20% of the of the sample. How do you interpret that? Like that will indicate that those who are really likely to adopt it actually uh, harm their patients by adopting the robots. Yeah, I mean uh, that really depends on uh, so. I don't want to go as far as saying that those people are harmed by the patient. It's true that uh, under some specifications, I can find that for some patients, uh, it would have been actually better to receive a traditional surgery, which means uh, just that uh, with the robotic surgery, they appear to have a longer length of stay, right, than what they would have had with traditional surgery. So, yes, that's true. I mean, in some cases, uh, for some part of the distributions, the effects actually point to the fact that these patients could have been better off with traditional surgery. The second question that I had uh, about this is in, in, in terms of trying to understand like the, the, the theory model or the conceptual framework underlying these two findings that, you know, we need to reconcile, right? So we, we need to reconcile the fact that those with the highest, uh, with, with the lowest skills, uh, either on the observables or let's say on the unobservables, because they will be the ones who will benefit the most from adopting the robots, are the last uh, to adopt the robot. That's why you have the, the lower likelihood of, of treatment for those. Um, now, in the case of the example that I gave you earlier of the 85-year-old uh, surgeon whose hand is trembling, it will seem to me that that surgeon will be really happy, you know, to to stop doing the surgeries by hand and now do them while sitting down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I will find it difficult to reconcile this. I think that it is easier to reconcile if we actually change our mindset and stop calling these people surgeons and start calling them hospitals. Because throughout, both in the uh, calculation of the measure of, sk of skills, but also from the fact that your instruments are at the hospital level rather than at the surgeon level, you know, distance to hospital, uh, time since hospital and so on. Actually, here you're talking about surgeon skills, but, but in practice, what you're measuring is hospital capabilities where the capabilities can be broadly defined by including a lot of organizational uh, features in addition to how good the local surgeons are. Okay, we can put them there as well, but it's like a, a broader family. And, and then I'm thinking, okay, well, we know that some hospitals have more money than others, that some hospitals are better run than others, some hospitals find themselves further away from the frontier than others. Is it possible that when you measure uh, the hospital skills or capabilities in the pre-robot adoption phase, you are capturing their hospitals that were doing particularly bad at that point in time for a number of uh, reasons? And then, you know, maybe in the, in the later process, they somehow like revert to the mean or, you know, the, the central government gave them more money because they were underperforming and they caught up along many dimensions. Um, and that was also, of course, correlated with the adoption of the robots. But that also means that they caught up later to that adoption than other hospitals that were better run, more efficient from the beginning. I understand completely the, the type of uh, narrative uh, you're, you're putting forward. Um, what I want to be sure to convey is that the effects I find are within uh, uh, narrow windows of time. So I'm not comparing uh, um, hospitals in different moments of their, their journey through robotic surgery. I'm comparing them within the same uh, kind of windows of time. Um, but I, I understand that, for example, so for me, a, a, a relevant concern is, for example, that I may be capturing inexperience. Okay, and so, for example, my measure of skills is not capturing uh, skills itself, but just uh, experience, and then these people are learning, and so that's why I see this uh, kind of uh, heterogeneity. Now, to address that, what I, what I do, for example, in, uh, in the appendix of the paper is uh, to fix uh, the number of... Uh, the number of years I see the surgeon operate. And so in this way, I only compare people that had the same surgical experience at the time uh, of, uh, uh, at the time when I measure skills. 
um, but to get to get back to uh, to your point, I I'm happy if people think that I'm capturing the hospital general quality, um, and I think it's true that uh, maybe worst hospital. I mean, I I show in the paper that worst hospitals adopt later the rub. <laughs> um, and that I mean because surgical skills are heavily correlated with the hospital quality. So that's kind of the, the old point I want to show. Um, but I don't see the effects coming from anything else than just using the robot. I don't see the effects coming from more money from the government or, or, or anything like that. The last thing that you do uh, is to compute conventional treatment effects. Uh, right? Like you, you said, oh, I have the marginal treatment effect. Uh, I can integrate in one way or another to get every other measure that the latte type of like a literature you know, has put forward. What do you find there? So again, I find that uh, the average treatment effect is negative for both of my outcomes, indicating that the robot uh, increases the performance of surgeons. But I also find that uh, uh, the average uh, treatment effect on the untreated patients is higher than the average uh, treatment effect on the treated, uh, which is uh, uh, mimics what I what you described in my marginal treatment effect curve. That actually the people least likely to receive robotic surgery appears to have the strongest uh, uh, treatment effect and the largest improvement in performance. So here also the average treatment effect on the treated sometimes is positive, uh, which means bad. Yeah. Uh, right. Absolutely. So that would mean that you know there were some people for whom it didn't quite work out. Yeah. Right. Obviously, we don't expect that these surgeons are perfectly able to foresee all these treatment effects for every single patient, right? No. So they're going to make mistakes sometimes. Correct. And also, I mean, I think it's important to realize that adapting to this new technology is really difficult. I mean, it requires to completely change the way we do things. And uh, uh, surgeons may not realize at the beginning of the significant uh, uh, learning cost uh, they have. Um, so, for example, when I started this project, my prior was that the higher skilled surgeons would adopt the list because they are already very good. And so the cost opportunity of changing would be higher. Right. Um, so you could you could see that, you know, uh, you know, this working in many different ways. And uh, sorry, just to go back to your example on the on the eight years old surgeon. Uh, with the hand tremor, I mean, these people would be very, very resilient not to change the way they do things. They would be very resistant to change, I think. Thank you, Elena, for coming to the podcast. Thank you, Jordi. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to other papers that we may have discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan.